1: We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters, and community. We pay our respects to them and their cultures and to elders both past, present, and emerging. Why do you always smile like that? (laughs)
0: Like, yeah. yeah, I don't know but I find it really funny for some reason I'm just like clapping off we go we used to just sit here awkwardly and look at each other but yeah well, I used to laugh then as well because I'm true. just like I'm embarrassed
1: um hello everybody um welcome back to the part two episode of Ellen's John Pat episode are you okay I, yeah I was just trying to signal at you to
0: introduce yourself oh my name's Jess I'm Ellen <laughs> all I just did was pull like uncomfortable faces yeah you were like I was like
1: oh my god the document's gone we're gonna have what are we gonna do we're gonna have we're gonna I don't know but it's fine we're here we're here um yeah so interesting time at the moment things have kicked off again not that they weren't ever really dormant but it's really kicked off um thinking about all of the people that are listening in Melbourne hope you guys are all okay and staying sane in stage four yikes hope you're all staying inside your house and doing the right thing yeah putting your mask on and not leaving what is it like one kilometers from their house five Five kilometers from your house five kilometers from your houses
0: Oof mates mates I sympathize. Down yeah. here in Tasmania where we have no active cases at all and everything is back to normal. So,
1: Yay.
0: It is sort of in this weird like calm before the storm here in Brisbane. Your round two is coming. Yeah. I'm never going to see my family or friends ever again.
1: <laughs> no. no. Um... Also, um, some other news. Friend of the podcast, Lauren McKenna, had her baby! Yay! Yay! Um, I've spoken about Lauren before, and her lovely husband, Carl, who are friends of the podcast, and also um, Lauren's one of the hosts of Cock Bo- Blocked by Corona. Um, she's great. Uh, new podcast that came over the pandemic about um like having a dating life during the pandemic which was very uh very funny and very cute Mm -hmm. um and they welcomed their new little baby boy my little pseudo nephew milo milo Milo. what a delicious chocolate drink that baby is gonna be yes he's so sweet and so cute um she sent me a photo because i bought him like some like i bought him some baby grows and stuff like that but obviously with like being a newborn you know chuck and whatever um but i also bought him (laughs) When he gets bigger, I got him a bunny suit because I've called him bunny since Lauren's been pregnant. That's cute. So, yay. That's some happy news if you wanted an injection of happiness. Um, also, we got a lovely message on our Instagram from one of our very loyal listeners, Emma. Um, Emma's an incredible photographer. Um, I will tag her in one of our stories because like, I'm obsessed with her work. She um, does incredible. Um, Emma Mul- M- McAlea? Oh, doll! I've probably butchered your last name, but Macaulay? she was, Macaulay. Macaulay, M A C A U L A. Anyway, that's her Instagram handle, Emma Macaulay. Um, and she like does beautiful like wedding photography and also um, like oh dang baby shoots and stuff like that. And she listens to us while she edits, which I think is so sweet. Um, <clears throat> and she was saying she was laughing. Um, she was having a laugh at us trying to um, pronounce Pilbara. And Roburn last week. Did she give us any advice? (laughs) No, but she also she said that the reasons that the cops would have been drinking small beers is because it's really hot.
0: Oh, so they like drink it quickly so the beer doesn't like warm. Yeah, it doesn't so it doesn't get too warm. My brain just now has just (laughs) like There is no way on God's earth, like, if you gave me $500,000 and a gun to my head, like, I couldn't come up with a reason why anybody would get a small beer.
1: (laughs) And there we've got it.
0: That's incredible. Wow. The things that people in warm climates have to put up with. It snowed uh, where I am today, so my beers never get warm. I've never seen snow, so... Should we do that? Should we? Should yeah, we? let's. Why don't we, um, uh,
1: as as we say, beginning of every podcast, um, we've got our Patreon that you, bec- you can become members of. Um, we also have uh, merch available at Tee Public and Redbubble. Um, and yeah, so let's kick off on part two. I've been thinking about this like nonstop over the last couple of hours, just going like, oh no, there's part two of this awful, awful awful case.
0: It doesn't get worse. Okay. It just kind of stays on a bad trajectory throughout, but like it's just like, you know, it's kind of, you know, it doesn't get exponentially worse. So, uh yes, we definitely left on a cliffhanger last week. Um, When we said that, the commission basically found that there was like a conspiracy to conceal the finding of John Pat's death. So we're going to talk about that in a little bit more detail today. And I just wanted to remind everybody of who the people are in this case, because there are quite a few. So uh, we've got firstly the off-duty police officers who were Constable Hull, Armit and Bordas. Those are the three police officers that were involved in the fight. Constable Hull was the one who started the whole shindig with Ashley James in the bottle shop at the Victoria Hotel. Uh, There's also Sergeant Devaney, who um, is like the sergeant of the police station. He didn't really do much. Uh, And then also Police Aid Walker, who is the police aide. All he really did in the fight was restrain his nephew, Ashley James. And then at the police station, we also have Constable Young, who was the on-duty police officer, who helped uh, take some of the... uh, men into the cells and then also at the police station we have police aide Gilby who was on duty that evening and also constable Pusey and then of course we have the main character of the story John Pat. so once all of the uh arrested men were taken into the cells the off-duty police officers basically said that what they did was they began the paperwork like obviously you know they have to do like incident reporting and stuff like that after they do an arrest or like say what the hell happened and why they did it, and also what charges were being laid and all those kinds of things. Uh, Sergeant Devaney telephoned the regional officer superintendent um, to let him know what had happened and just said like that there had been an incident at the hotel, and that phone call happened around 10, 18 p.m. Constable Armit said that he went to the hospital to have his injuries treated around 10, 30 p.m. and came back around 10, 55 p.m. Interesting that he gets to go to the hospital, but everybody else who was injured in the fight, just spend the rest of the night in the cell. Interesting how that happens. Anyway, Mm. um, Constable Pusey, who was on duty, returned to the station from his rounds at 10.30pm and Constable Young met him outside the station, told him about what had happened in the evening and then asked Constable Pusey to go to the home of a man named Bob Hart, who is a Department of Community Welfare worker, to inform him about the um, arrest of John Pat. So Constable Pusey went off and did that. Constable Young did a cell check around 10.45pm but, quote, forgot to check the juvenile cell. At 10.50pm, Constable Young telephoned Guy Parker, who was another Department of Community Welfare worker, to inform him about John Pat's arrest. Constable Pusey then returned to the station around 11pm. And 11.30pm, Constable Young asked Police Aid Gilby to go and check the juvenile cells as he had forgotten to do it himself in his rounds. Gilby did so, and saw John Pat lying on his back on the floor of the juvenile cell, and he appeared to be dead. So he returned to the office, informed the other police officers, and from there, basically, everything was done precisely by the book. So they checked him for a pulse. When it was found that he didn't have one, um, they called the sergeant, who was next door in his house, which was next to the police station. And they also called a man named Dr. Rigby to make an official declaration of death. They secured the cell, they photographed the bodies, and they informed the superintendent about the incident. The superintendent said that everybody who was at the station that evening should remain there until, like, official investigators arrived. Smart, yes. But despite this order, Sergeant Devaney told Constable Young to go home at midnight when his shift ended because he was visibly very upset. Mm, so that's the story. <laughs> Uh, so first and foremost, the the one of many things that the commissioner found to be uh, a lie was that uh, Constable Armit didn't go to the hospital at ten thirty, but rather at ten o'clock, returning to the station around ten twenty p.m., which was backed up by the hospital's like admission records. There he would have filled in the occurrence book, which was like the book. It's a, you can work it out. It's the book where they record the occurrences of the evening, um, and like what charges were being laid and whatever. Then Sergeant Devaney, who, as I already mentioned, lived next door to the station, he was kind of like in and out throughout the night, Um, but one time when he was in, he noticed that Constable Young had written in the property book, which is like where they record the property of the people that they are arresting and they sign it, um, and are like, yes, although none of the people who were arrested that evening signed the property book, it was all left blank. Uh, But Sergeant Devaney noticed that in the property book, uh, uh, Constable Young had noted that the – like, the status of some of the men was bloody. Um, Young explained to Sergeant Devaney that they had super if superficial injuries consistent with being in a fight, and Sergeant Devaney told Young to keep regular checks on all the prisoners, like the fact that they were injured, you know, mm-hmm. that their status was listed as bloody, like, he was given, like, a directive to take extra care I while mean, checking yeah. on the prisoners. So then Devaney went to his house to telephone the superintendent, so that's about 10, 18 p.m., um, when he returned, he told Constable Young to ensure that somebody from the Department of Community Welfare be informed of Pat's arrest. Young said that he told Pusey to do so standing on the veranda outside of the station, and then he went to check the adult cells. The commissioner found that it was highly unlikely that, um, as I've already said a thousand times, actually, the commissioner found that it was highly unlikely that John Pat's body was really found at 11.30 p.m. because if Young's, like, testimony was true that he, you know, told Constable Pusey to go to the Department of Community Welfare or go to Bob Hart from the Department of Community Welfare at about 10.20 after just being told by Sergeant Devaney, also at 10.20 roughly, like, oh, by the way, you've got to go and tell somebody about John Pat's arrest. Then he went to check on the cells at 10.30, which would have taken, what, five minutes? Like, John Pat would have been in the front of his mind at this moment in time. There's no way he would have forgotten. no. 10 minutes after being told to do so, to go and check on John Pat. Um, So another kind of discrepancy was that after checking the adult cells, forgetting to go and check the juvenile cells for John Pat, he then almost immediately after that called the Department of Community Welfare himself to inform them of Pat's arrest right after he'd allegedly forgotten to check the juvenile cell and also right after he had sent Constable Pusey out of the station to go and do it. Um, The fact that the department of community welfare was informed twice at all made no sense to the commissioner there was like a set up system that had been established between the dcw and the police for what to do if a juvenile was arrested after hours they literally just had like a list of all the people who worked there and then all the phone numbers like hanging up in the station so all they would do is call whatever dcw worker happened to be on shift that day and informed them that an arrest had been made. So they had this established pr- procedure that they had done all the time, and the only reason that they would ever send an officer to actually go to somebody's house would be if they had tried to call them a whole bunch of times and hadn't received any response. Right, But nobody went to call Bob Hart, uh, Constable Young just sent Constable Pusey out straight away without contact- contacting anybody else, and then called the DCW himself 15 minutes later. So, with that information in mind, the Commissioner found that John Pat's body was almost certainly discovered around or prior to 10.30pm. After the body was found, the officers inside had to make a quick decision about how to respond. Constable Pusey, who had been returning from his patrol when he arrived at the station, was an unwanted presence in this criminal conspiracy. He could walk in and they're all like, ah, oh, what do we do? Like running around with like chickens with their head cut off trying to work out what to do with his body. He comes in and he's like, um, what are y'all doing? So they had to send him away, which is why Constable Young came up with the story. I'll go, go to Bob Hart. But then in order to make everything appear by the book, Young had to then telephone the Department of Community Welfare. Um, so he did this, just how they're supposed to do it, by finding the person who was rostered on that day and calling them. Um, and it was clearly done so in order to give the police an alibi. John Pat couldn't have already been dead prior to his discovery time of 11.30 because Young had spoken to the DCW and said that he was alive, that he didn't seem to be too drunk, and that Pat had said that he had intended to plead guilty. He also wrote down this phone call um, in the occurrence book, which wasn't usually procedure. Like, they would never really record that they'd call the Department of Community Welfare because it was like a set procedure that they did every time. So there's no point, there was no need to write it down because it's like assumed that it would have been done if that makes sense. So this kind of alibi is already being constructed. Uh, The body being found prior to 1030 also solved another mystery for the coroner, which we talked about a lot last episode, which was that John Pat had damage to his ribs and his aorta that likely occurred post or perimortem. The commissioner like stopped short of saying that like this is what happened, but his theory was that these injuries were sustained in the course of a, resusc- a resuscitation attempt once the uh, body had been discovered. yes, yeah, so that's
1: really easy when you're doing resus on somebody to yeah break exactly. Their ribs. I have learnt that from watching Chicago Med nonstop <laughs> for the past four days <laughs>
0: classic
1: classic. <laughs> Oh, that's
0: so janky. So janky. So the police account saying that John had sustained those injuries in the fall with Constable Armit that occurred during the fight couldn't be true or was super, 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 like medical miracle unlikely to be true because the wounds hadn't bled. So John Pat would have had to have miraculously sustained this injury, which is a tear to his aorta, so like your heart, you know, Um, he would have had to have sustained this injury during the fight, um, keep fighting with police after sustaining the injury, get arrested, be put in the back of the van, fall out of the van, get dragged to his cell and be placed within the cell without that wound bleeding, which is just not possible. (laughs) Like it's just not, it's just your heart can't not bleed. Like that's what it is for. So as Jess mentioned, wounds to the chest area are very common during CPR um, and it's not at all uncommon for people to bruise or even break ribs during the process of resuscitation. The commissioner said that it was, quote, a perfectly natural thing to attempt upon the discovery of a person who appeared to be unresponsive. Um, but I mean, you stopped- can
1: break a rib by sneezing, by withholding a sneeze. What? So many. Can things- you? Yeah, a girl from our high school. Like that's how she broke a rib. Who was she? Like.
0: Wait, don't say in, her name. But I won't.
1: But like, yeah, they kept like they kept a sneeze in and like like not fully broke a rib, but like damaged their rib.
0: Oh my god. Sometimes my rib, like, pops out, but that's it. <laughs> Sometimes I'm doing nothing and I shift and like my rib pops out and I have to pop it back in. I don't know where it pops out of. But it's Ellen's just like very frail. It's just off kills. I am very frail. <laughs> I always think that I would be like, you know, uh Anderberg in like Pride and Prejudice. I would just sit on like a rolly chair and be like pale and nobody would marry me because I was of a sickly constitution.
1: Um, Anne would have been very good at the piano if she'd been able to learn. If if she'd ever
0: been able to learn. That's my excuse for everything. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I can't be good at that. I'm too frail. (laughs) So... So the commissioner stopped short of making an official finding that this resuscitation attempt had happened because, and this is a very vicious quote, because, quote, I do not have the confidence in the the evidence of the officers. For a variety of reasons already discussed, I have no confidence in Armit's account of the incident with John Pat after they had gone to ground. I have no confidence in the evidence as to how he was loaded into the van. I have no confidence in the evidence as to the unloading. He went on to say... I do find that either one or other of three things happened. Firstly, that the rib and aorta injuries were sustained as a result of an attempt at resuscitation, which took place after the body was discovered and before it was seen by Gilby at 11.30pm, in which case evidence has been suppressed and lies told. Secondly, the rib and aorta injuries were sustained when Armit fell upon the deceased and Armit's account of what then happened is not correct, or the rib and thirdly all the rib and aorta injuries were sustained in an incident which occurred after Ahmet fell upon the deceased this incident must have involved police officers and must have occurred either immediately prior to the loading of the vans during the loading during the unloading or thereafter at the station if such an incident occurred it must have been known to some officer or officers and has been deliberately suppressed in the event that this third possibility is true, such incidents must, given the evidence as to the fact of John Pat's condition at the relevant times, involve not only a suppression of facts, but also the unlawful application of excessive force sufficient to cause those injuries. That was a lot of words. I ran out of oxygen halfway through. <laughs> I hope nobody could tell. Um, So basically he's saying, this person has sustained these injuries. However he sustained them, the truth has not been told. No. About the situations, and because everything has been lied about, it's impossible to. They're make. like, I can't, I can't, you know, I can't say with it happened confidence, this way. can't say that it happened because exactly so exactly. much has already been fibbed about. Um. So, after the, after the, uh, unofficial, after the official discovery of the body at eleven thirty p.m., um, after Doctor Rigby attended the body and declared that death had occurred. John Pat was then transported to the state mortuary for an official po- post-mortem examination, which would be conducted by Dr. Hilton at 12.30 the next day. So um, another a number of other like doctors and physicians and staff reviewed subsequently the uh, like, post-mortem results. So I'm going to talk about the post-mortem results and then some of the other things that doctors said um, throughout the course of the entire investigation into this shindig. So firstly, Dr. Hilton determined that the cause of death was a closed head injury, which is, quote, an application of force to the left o- occipit? Occipital. 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 It's not occipital. It's just occipit. O-C-C-I-P-U-T. Oh. Well, they say occipital a lot on Chicago On man, Chicago man. <laughs> yeah, well, I know what occipital is. So I don't know. What, I think it's just occipit. Occipit. Okay. Occipit. Resulted in a centacute injury, which cause damage to the right frontal area of the brain. The backwards and forwards movement of the brain within the skull, and to some extent, it's twisting within the skull, stretched and tore a number of the smaller veins, which cause subdural bleeding, resulting in a subdural hemorrhage. So basically, it's not the injury to, like, the skull or anything like that, but is the damage to the brain, which occurs by movement within... Yeah, because,
1: like, when you hit your head, like, your mm-hmm. brain obviously, like, hits...
0: Yeah, so his Hits essentially his brain hit the front of his skull from the force of the impact to the back of the head, Ugh. which just sounds like the worst That's possible horrific. thing. So Absolutely this kind of horrific. this kind of injury uh, wouldn't have had a wound or any kind of ex- kind of external bleeding. So not to be the devil's advocate because the devil does not need an advocate in this situation, but it's not impossible to see why the police kind of didn't realize the extent of the damage to John Pat. No, because he didn't have yeah. any vis- visible injuries. Um, but And I also- mean, as I
1: say, not to be a devil's advocate as well, like the like knock-on effects of head injuries can sometimes occur, like not just, like not when the incident happens, yeah. but like can. Afterwards, yeah. Yeah, you know, he might have had like, symptoms of like looking inebriated or something like yes that. but yeah
0: um we're gonna talk about that in just a second okay oh, um so it was the it was the view of quite a few of the physicians that the injury would have been sufficient to kill John Pat even if he wasn't affected by alcohol but it is possible that the presence of alcohol may have impacted his level of consciousness more severely mm-hmm. um so sorry my skype just like went all funny and now it's very much thrown me off kilter so it wasn't possible to establish an exact time of death, but the commissioner determined that based on the known facts of the day in question, in combination with the medical evidence, it was likely sustained not earlier than two hours before death. It was necessary for there to be a substantial degree of force to sustain the injury. Uh, while there are various people that examined the, the, record of the post-mortem, differed in their opinions about whether or not his skull should have been fractured. It was uh, found that it was possible that falling backwards from a standing position and striking his head on the road could have been the cause of the injury. Um, as I've already mentioned from the medical evidence and as also as Jess has just mentioned, it was likely that John Pat was rendered unconscious to some degree immediately after sustaining the injury. So what would have happened would have been a period of semi-consciousness then unconsciousness, coma, and then death occurring quite shortly uh, with like the commissioner said within probably half an hour or so of sustaining the in- injury. So, yeah, exactly as you say, like initially he would have had some level of consciousness which mm-hmm. potentially could have been mistaken uh, being like drunkenness, but also to that effect the police had seen John Pat prior to the fight. So then yeah. oh, yeah. They could have had some kind of recognition of his level of intoxication before this all started. Um, So additional injuries included um, a fine hairline fracture on the right side of the skull that was possibly caused by the application of force from a fist or a boot. Evidence of bruising to this area also supported the idea that John Pat was punched or kicked in the head. Dr. Hilton found that there was at least one application of force to the back of the head and six to the right side of the head. There were other injuries to the brain, um, including contusions to the right frontal and left temporal areas of the brain. Jess, since you're a sh- Chicago med student now, um, you can possibly explain this to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so the injuries to the right frontal area were significant and were likely caused to a blow to the left side of the head. And the contusions on the left were related to an application of force on the right side of the head. How, if you hit somebody on the right side of the head.
1: Well, cause so I think like if, so say if I got hit, like on my right side, I guess, mm-hmm. like the brain, like with the force of the blow, would hit this right. part of my skull. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. And like that's how I, I don't know, I'm not a doctor. I'm if you a doctor are a doctor, either. if you are a doctor or
0: a nurse, or let us um, know. Let us know. I could have researched it, but I also think it's funny when we just admit that we don't know stuff.
1: <laughs> I mean, we wouldn't be us if we weren't slapdash
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> so overall the medical experts found that there were several applications of force to the head area that caused injury um the one causing the subdural hemorrhage that killed John Pat and then at least two others that caused the damage to the right and left sides of the brain and perhaps more from that i mean like what
1: what we can ascertain from all of this is that he was beaten yeah viciously he was he, was, like, hit. he was in with, a fight yeah you know, like without malice from people that are meant to keep protect. the peace and protect and stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. So the additional uh, non-fatal head injuries would have, quote, uh, augmented or increased the effects of the major left occipital impact. Um, and this is not, yeah, this is kind of on your point. The commissioner didn't go as far to say this but I would like to gently remind our listeners that eyewitnesses gave evidence of seeing a person who was lying on the ground being kicked in the head both outside the hotel and outside the police station so there is there is eyewitness evidence depending you know that he was
1: beaten within an inch of his fucking
0: life by these people I don't know if I would necessarily go that far he was definitely beaten very 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 badly but I Think that you know it was a fight situation. That doesn't excuse it, and it especially doesn't excu- excuse the fact that it was the police doing the fighting. But I think it's important to say that this was a fight, and not necessarily like a bashing. Like there were like eight people involved in this. Yeah, was, no, it was it was a it was a fight. Yeah, um, you're, you're very very right. Like there was there was more force used than was necessary. But yeah, you know, just the, the facts of the story are like it's he was not necessarily getting piled on. But these injuries were sustained in the course of a a fight. Mm -hmm. So the internal injuries, which I've already mentioned, were the tear to the aorta, which was likely caused post-mortem as there was no bleeding, uh, two rib fractures, and internal bruising in the lumbar region. And so obviously, as I've already mentioned, the tear to the aorta was like the main red flag that indicated there must have been some attempt to resuscitate John Pat. Uh, due to the size of the tear, which was extensive, it would have resulted in substantial bleeding had John Pat been alive. Jo- uh, Dr. Hilton said that he had seen similar injuries sustained when there had been unsuccessful attempts to resuscitate other individuals. The fractures to the ribs suggested quote, a compression of force to the a compression force of back to front or front to back. Um, so, meaning it was caused by an application like from the front or the back. <laughs> mm. um, but there was no bruising to the area immediately above the broken ribs, which indicated that circulation was not occurring at the time the fracture was sustained. Yes. Meaning, again, they likely occurred at the time of or just after death. Um so you can't bruise-, bruise a dead body. Pardon?
1: You can't really
0: bruise a dead body. No. no. Um, the bruising to the belly region was consistent with a heavy punch to the stomach. Another very interesting fact is this. When Dr. Hilton received uh, John Pat's body, he noted that it was, like, freakishly clean. There was no blood or dirt or anything on the body. Mm -hmm. There was blood found on the floor of the cell when John Pat's body was found. Um, While John Pat had had some minor external injuries that were bloody, Dr. Hilton didn't think that they were sufficient to cause the amount of blood that was found on the ground of the cell. And, quote, there must be a question mark as to how the blood on the floor fitted with the clean state of the body delivered to him. Dr. Hilton was of the opinion after the post-mortem examination that firstly, there had been an attempt to resuscitate John Pat, and that secondly, his body had been washed. He made this known to Detective Sergeant Griffiths, who was a police officer from another station who was present for the post-mortem. Dr. Hilton was informed a time later that there had been no attempt to resuscitate and the body hadn't been washed, but Dr. Hilton was like, there is no way that that is true, and quote, kept at it and kept getting the same reply. Dr. Hilton later testified that he talked to a number of police officers investigating John Pat's death about the condition of the body. There was blood standing on John's jeans and evidence of blood in his hair and, quote, blood froth in his trachea, which would be consistent with John lying on his back, bleeding from his nose or lips and inhaling the blood. Um, there was also dirt on several places on John's jeans, but there was no dirt or grit or blood or anything on his body. So he'd fallen out of a van flat on his face, been dragged to a cell, was lying on the floor of the cell, and yet there was no dirt or blood anywhere on his body. The commissioner said, which like, is a very, uh, this is a very uh, clear indication of why you shouldn't actually take, just because this is an official government investigation, doesn't mean you should not take all of this with a grain of salt. Because the commissioner said that it was possible that whatever dirt John sustained during the fight or whatever could have just come off while he was taken to the cell or what have you. But, like, that's just not... He didn't have a shower. Yeah, he didn't have a shower. Um, At three separate points during that evening, it is certain that John Pat was lying on the ground, once at the hotel, once in front of the station after he fell from the van, and once in the juvenile cell. And yet the only part of bit of dirt that was found on him was, like, on the knee of his jeans. It just beggars belief that, you know... It absolutely beggars belief and just shows that, yeah, just because he's the commissioner doesn't mean he's infallible. So... Now that we've discussed some of the injuries in more detail, we're now going to go on to the other police investigation into John Pat's death. So at 12.55 a.m. on the, well, I guess the next day, but of the night in question, um, after being informed of John Pat's death, Superintendent McGrath arranged for Inspector Wallace Leslie from the Carratha Regional Office and Detective Sergeant Michael Bartlett from the Carratha CIB to attend the Roban Police Station. So Bartlett and Leslie, they didn't really have that much information about what, exactly the circumstances were attending. Um, Bartlett said that he had no information other than that the person in question was arrested for fighting with police. He would later say, quote, In my mind, the young bloke had been in a fight with police. He was thrown in the van. I think the term once used was like a dead kangaroo. He fell out of the van. He was thrown out of the van. He was pulled out of the van, and he was dragged down to the cells. These are the stories we were getting. Somewhere in that something killed him, something caused his death, and what we wanted to do was find out which one fitted where. Was it the police? Was it an accident? We don't know, but there was something which went wrong and the boy was dead and he shouldn't have been. The boy died from injuries he shouldn't have received. And I don't think there was any doubt of that right from day one. So these police officers, Leslie and Bartlett, when they arrived at the station, they um, observed Pat's body, which had like a literal chalk outline around it, like in a TV show, and questioned the off-duty constables who had been involved. Notably, the police were all questioned first in a group. And in the retelling of the evening's events, Hole neglected to mention to the investigators that the reason the whole ordeal began in the first place was that he started a fight with Ashley James. So Bartlett and Leslie were told that the police, quote, attended an altercation, not that they themselves were responsible for instigating the altercation. They also didn't mention the fact that John Pat had fallen from the van, Surely the most significant, like, red flashing light piece of information you could think to tell an investigator when a person has literally just died in police custody. In my opinion, I think if they had said from the get-go, oh no, he, like, oh, he fell from the van, we didn't realise he was injured, we're so sorry, they probably would have gotten away with this. Like, they could have, if they had concocted that lie at this point in time, they probably would have... You know, there would have been an internal affairs investigation and it would have been signed off and everything had been fine. But they didn't even tell the investigators about the fall. Um, so it wasn't immediately obvious to the investigators that John Pat could have died from injury sustained in the fight. As I've already mentioned, his body was clean, there was no blood on it, and he was found lying in what they described as a natural sleeping position. It seemed like it could have been possible for Pat to have just died in his sleep of natural causes. Um... At 2.50 a.m., Constable Pusey was again sent out to wake up Bob Hart to come and identify John Pat's body because they didn't have any information about John Pat's next of kin. Um, Bob Hart identified the body, signed a bunch of identification of deceased person forms, and then the story that he was told was that the police intervened in an altercation between an Aboriginal man and woman and that Pat may have been injured when, quote, an Aboriginal man was kicking at an officer who had fallen on top of Pat. So this other person you know, was told that essentially another Aboriginal person had injured John Pat accidentally while trying to injure another police officer, which, as you'll note, does not at all match the stories that came later. Uh, when The Undertaker, Keith Winnin, came to collect John Pat's body, he also noted the peculiarity of the lack of blood and dirt on the body, and he also noted that the position of the body was different than what was shown in the photos that the police initially took. It was further away from the bench. John's hands were by his side and his feet were not crossed, unlike in the photos the police had taken. The next day, Sergeant Devaney uh, conducted a cell check around 6 o'clock in the morning and Roy Smith said that he was in serious pain and told Devaney that he had been kicked in a brawl. It was apparently the first that Devaney was hearing about any altercations between police and the arrested men after they arrived at the police station. So Roy was examined by Dr. Rigby and it was determined that he needed to go to hospital. Um, and for reasons unclear to me, the undertaker was the person who took Roy to the hospital. And the undertaker said that Roy had dried blood on his face and teeth and couldn't talk from the pain. Smith ended up staying five days in the hospital. Um, so when Borders, Hole and Armit got to work at eight o'clock in the morning, they were told of Roy's situation, that he was in hospital, and were told to photograph Brian Munder, Peter Coppin, and Lennis James, to, like, show the state of their health and, like, show uh, evidence of their injuries. And then at 10 a.m., Brian Munder, Lennis James, and Peter Coppin were taken to court. So Constable Amish was operating that day as a clerk of the courts. So he is there, like, working in the court on for, like, a trial that he was, like, instrumental right. in causing. Not a trial, but, like, you know, a hearing. So Interesting. So, all three men, they were charged, and they were uh, released on bail, as was Roy Smith, although he was in hospital, not present in court at the time, and the arrested men made no complaints about uh, to the court about how they had been treated, although, as the commissioner noticed, they couldn't have, as Constable Armit was right fucking there. So, you're not going to say, um, excuse me, Judge, actually, Sorry, we were beaten by the beat police. these beat the shit out of us. <laughs> exactly. Um, mm. Okay,
1: this all seems... It makes my skin crawl.
0: Yeah, it's a bit skin crawly. It's just uh, also like, it. as you say, janky is the the best word to appreciate it. So, shortly after that, uh, Inspector Bartlett took Ahmed aside for a chat, bachelor style, but like on the record, and asked Ahmed about how drunk seemed to uh, John Pat seemed to be on the night in question. Ahmed had maintained to this point that Pat was so drunk that he was dragged to the cell. And Bartlett queried that, as there was no evidence, as I have mentioned now 4,000 times, of dragging on John's body. Then Armit said that he had picked John up and John had like semi-walked with him while leaning on him down to the cell. Again, in this conversation, Constable Armit made no mention of the fall from the van. Much later, when Bartlett was talking to Constable Young, he was finally told that John Pat had fallen face first out of the van after trying to step onto a step that was not there. This was the first mention of anything that could have possibly caused the death of John Pat. but unbeknownst to Constable Young, the cause of death, which as we now know was an injury to the back of the head, Mm. had just been found by Dr. Hilton. So he's beginning to craft the story of John Pat falling from the van face first, but obviously that can't have caused his death because he was injured to the back of the head. So once the cause of death had been found, unfortunately, one of the first people to be informed of that was Constable Armit. So... I don't know who was responsible for informing people but they had telephoned the robin station hoping to speak to bartlett but bartlett was actually on the way to caratha um who and he was going there to pick up detective sergeant scott and inspector balcom who were two internal investigations officers coming to take over the case so in trying to contact officer bartlett he contacted, Constable contacted one of the
1: conspirators no. one of the conspirators
0: so now they know the cause of death none of them have been questioned apart from the conversation with armit and young they haven't really officially been like sat down and questioned on the record about like the timeline of events and things like that so the internal affairs investigation basically the superintendent and everybody were like okay this is getting a little bit bigger than we think we need you know Essentially, the big dogs from Perth to take over the investigation. Um, so Scott and Balcom were met with some serious stonewalling from the five police officers, who by this point in early October had retained legal counsel. So while Balcom and Scott managed to do kind of the best invasion, investigation that they could, um, including like being the first to actually like ask eyewitnesses about events outside that happened outside the police station. The officers themselves wouldn't offer anything more than a statement which had been prepared by their lawyer. And only a couple of weeks into their investigation, it was actually cut short by the beginning of the coronial inquest. So Balcombe and Scott felt like sidelined from the beginning of, by the beginning of the inquest, because they felt like it had been fast-tracked for political reasons and would prevent a thorough investigation from being conducted. So the inquest began fairly quickly in the middle of October, and I'm not gonna go into massive detail, I'm not going to go into any detail, in fact, because you've already heard all of the evidence. Um, so I would just be repeating myself. Um, but none of the five officers in question chose to give any evidence at the inquest. Uh, but the coroner there found that all five should be committed to trial for the crime of unlawful killing. So an official trial was going to begin. And it occurred in Caratha in May of 1984. The jury for the trial was all white.
1: Oh, for the love of Jesus.
0: The fact of This fact was noted by the commissioner because, you know, frankly, this was a trial that was conducted in the Pilbara region, which has a much higher Aboriginal population than the rest of Australia and you'd probably have to try <laughs> to not randomly select at least one Indigenous person. The trial lasted three weeks with each of the police officers being acquitted. Uh, mm. Roy Smith bought a case of assault causing bodily harm against Constable Young but he was also acquitted of that charge. Uh, so for For many reasons, the Commissioner found that the investigation into the five police officers was unsatisfactory, Uh, not because the investigating officers were incompetent, but due to a range of factors, including the fact that the officers weren't questioned individually until after they lawyered up, and that one of the people involved in the death was one of the first to find out the cause of death, so the officers had plenty of time to come up with a convincing story. So, after the trial, that was basically it, until the Royal Commission occurred several years later, and... You know the Royal Commission. Uh, I I'm, I think that I might do a bonus episode or something like that, talking about the the Royal Commission in its entirety, because it's much more than they they actually investigated ninety nine deaths in custody, and this is only one of them. So it was a, it was a big undertaking. Um, and you know, as I mentioned in the first episode, it kind of came about because of John Pat's death and about five other very high profile deaths in custody cases that caused a lot of upset in the community obviously you know with this case like john pat was 16 for five police officers to be acquitted of the death in custody of a 16 year old like the 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 uproar and the disappointment and the upset in the community was massive and there was hope that the royal commission would do something about that but Essentially, the commissioner didn't make any particular finding about the death of John Pat. He didn't find that there had been excessive force. He didn't really find that the police had, you know, like while he was admonishing of the police, he didn't necessarily say these five people should be punished in some way for this. Um, And generally speaking, the commission didn't find fault with any individual police officer for any of the 99 deaths in custody that were being examined. Rather, they found that the issue was a failure in the duty of care on the part of the police and other institutions that were imprisoning Indigenous people. So the quote here is, there appeared to be little appreciation of and less dedication to the duty of care owed by custodial authorities and their officers to persons in custody. We found many system defects in relation to care, many failures to exercise proper care, and in general, a poor standard of care. In some cases, the defects and failures were causally related to the deaths. In some cases, they were not. And in others, it was open to debate. In many cases, death was contributed to by system failures or absence of due care. So, we're not actively murdering you. We're just neglecting you until you die. So, I mean... I've got a lot of thoughts and feelings about that. I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts and feelings about that. And lots of indigenous people have very serious thoughts and feelings about that. And John Pat has been a name that really hasn't had the chance to kind of fade off into obscurity. He's still used as an example of the failure of the system when it comes to dealing with indigenous deaths in custody. And, you know, While the commission, the commission certainly hasn't changed anything for Indigenous deaths and custody. As I mentioned last episode, Indigenous deaths and custody have actually increased in the 30 years since the commission. Um, If anything, I mean, there was something ridiculous like 339 recommendations put forward by the commission, um, including, you know, that Indigenous people should only be arrested when it is a last resort. They shouldn't be arrested for crimes such as being drunk in public, which, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to Fortitude Valley, but people are pretty frequently drunk in public. And We've you know, been
1: drunk in the Fortitude Valley.
0: I've done things Stumbling in Fortitude around. Valley that I probably should have been arrested for. You know? Like and, and the whole issue of, you know, this kind of over persecution For minor crimes, which is definitely happening in Robin at the time, you know, Mm. all that would need to happen would be for an Aboriginal person to step into the hotel and they were like at risk of being arrested. You know. Drinking in a public place, yes, it's illegal, but people do it all the time. And if one all the time. And if one section of the community is being arrested for a crime that other sections of the community aren't, there is such a a problem there.
1: Such blatant white prejudice such blatant like white prejudice
0: it's just such
1: ugh, oh and god.
0: I I wanted to repeat something that the um commissioner said about you know people in robe and getting arrested for essentially being visible in public you know for doing things that that was the thing that you said last episode that just made me like
1: oh rage my quit. god like
0: yeah the the that and as I said last week as well you know one another thing that he said is that you know Indigenous people doing things that would be distasteful to non Indigenous people. People doing something that is distasteful to a non Indigenous person isn't a crime. Like, it's not a crime. You know, living a lifestyle is not a crime. Nice. And it is just, it's an un, undisputed fact. That Indigenous people are arrested for things that white people would get a slap on the wrists, if anything, for. If
1: anything.
0: And this is any what...
1: sort of reprimand.
0: And this is exactly what results in this, you know, great increased rate of Indigenous people dying in custody is because they are incarcerated more frequently. You know, it's... If you have more people being arrested for stupid shit you have more opportunities for people to die in custody these people should not have been in jail John Pat was 16 he should have been taken home to his mum and his stepfather he shouldn't have been arrested exactly
1: he should have been because he was a minor he should have been and also he shouldn't have been um Charged or anything like that, or even put into custody without notifying the parents.
0: Which, to be honest,
1: doesn't sound
0: like that that happened at all. No, it didn't. And the fact that they said that they didn't have any next of kin information for John Pat even after he died, like he'd been arrested before. How did they not have his next of kin information? Like that is just no. That's just that's just absolute horseshit. Everything about this, like I read an article that I linked in the last week's show notes or the last episode show notes. Um, that was from. I was talking about the family of John Pat, and you know, this happened 37 years ago. Like John Pat has been dead for far longer than he was ever alive, and the fact that this is still happening is happening more frequently, is happening worse, is happening to children in juvenile detention.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like you know, you never. Like oh, by the way, the um,
1: petition to raise the age was rejected. Oh, no. Well, I'll take that out of this week's show notes
0: then. 10-year-olds can still be arrested. And again, this is the thing is that, like, you know, you think think, like, you know, okay, if a 10-year-old murders a child, then they should probably be arrested. But what happens, especially in Indigenous communities, is that 10-year-olds doing 10-year-old stuff, you know – End up being imprisoned for things that a white child would never be imprisoned for. No. You know, what little kid hasn't gone to a pub? Well, not little kid, but you know, what 14 year old doesn't nick off to the park for a cigarette or something, you know, or go out with friends and have a couple of Vodka cruises? You know, a, a child in an affluent white suburb will do that and go home to the mum and dad. A child in an Aboriginal community will be arrested and imprisoned. And that it's is just, what is wrong.
1: It's just like in this country. I mean, the good example of just white privilege and everything like that is what's been... I mean, the, the women that were involved in the COVID incident in Brisbane weren't Indigenous, but they were women of colour. Um, And it has come out today that men in Logan did basically the exact same thing, mm-hmm. and they haven't been named.
0: Mm-hmm. And they and haven't had their faces on the cover of the newspaper with yeah. the word Enemy of the State
1: written behind it. It's the... I, the thing that sort of drives me crazy is like this sort of fear that's like ingrained in us from children that indigenous people are somehow other mm-hmm. and that you know like you you sort of grow up we grow up so sort of separate from it so disconnected
0: so like, so segregated
1: so, so segregated from it whereas you know we are on their land mm-hmm. and I want to know more. I, w- I want to know about – I want to know about how they cultivate. I want to know about all of this sort of stuff because we haven't been educated about it. No. Because there's this complete divide and people – like white people are so scared of about talking about race.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like it's such an uncomfortable sort of topic where it's like we – I think now a lot more people are now recognizing this white privilege that we've been growing up with because if if we knew like a 16-year-old boy from our high school or some guy that we knew that was behaving like this like a white guy this wouldn't have happened this, this wouldn't have ha- happened to him
0: How many fucking jobos even if
1: he had even if he like even if a white man like had died in custody like a white 16-year-old boy and you know, if there was even some sort of breadth of a hair of negligence mm-hmm. from the police in any state of the process, they would have, you know,
0: things would have happened. Exactly. And that's exactly, I think, the, you know the, where the commission said it right, is that there is a failure in the duty of care yeah. to an and entire section of the community. To be honest, like,
1: it is rampant in our communities as well. Mm-hmm. Like, it is not just... It is not just a problem with law enforcement. It is a problem with us as people that we are completely negligent mm-hmm. of our Indigenous people, and it's that entire thing that I because I, that visible like making um, allowing our Indigenous people to be visible mm-hmm. like that. I can't even describe the pain in my chest when you said that last week, uh, last recording. Mm-hmm. Like I was just heartbroken because Because that's what our society wants to
0: do. They want to chuck indigenous people, you know, in reserves in the middle of fucking nowhere. You know? It is a literal fact that, you know, the areas that we have so kindly gifted to the original custodians of the land on which we stand Is land that, like, you know, is unable to be cultivated, is of lower, you know, value than the land that we have ourselves for, you know, cattle and crops and stuff like that. So we, you know, we say, okay, here's a little patch of your land back. Sit here. We're not going to give you any social services. We're not going to do anything to increase. And, like, how
1: much it costs to get food shipped out there and the exorbitant prices that they charge for normal, everyday resources Mm -hmm. is just... Barbaric, like and it it is it's horrific.
0: It's, it's structural and it's also on purpose. This isn't happening because you know, people are slipping through the cracks. This is on purpose to maintain this, you know, white supremacist culture that we live yeah, in. It's just beyond and it has to
1: stop. It has and to it stop. It has to stop because it's because criminal.
0: It's criminal you should care about the other people on your planet on the country that you live
1: in. And if the, if anything of like what is happening in our world at the moment with the pandemic, with black lives matters, is that we have to be so much more compassionate about the people mm-hmm. that are around us because this isn't just about us anymore. No. And people who have issues, sorry, I'm getting a bit teary, but like people that were getting like really up in arms about the black lives matters movement, it's like This isn't about you. Yeah, shut the fuck up, Karen. Shut the fuck up. Like, you know, it's time for us to all take a step back and to listen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you may think, oh, well, here's two white women that are doing your podcast. But it's like the reason why we wanted to do this, and I will say this again, is because we both wanted a chance to educate ourselves
0: Mm -hmm. to know more
1: and to serve better
0: exactly and i hope if nothing else we have let somebody who didn't know about this know yeah and you know we've kept jump Pat's name alive for a little tiny bit longer yeah we've acknowledged that you know the fact that the the country that we live in that we benefit from is the same country that caused this young man's death exactly yeah okay we should go Oh, I hope you all enjoyed you. that episode. Um thank
1: you all so much, Ellen. Fantastic job. That was so great. Um we'll be back in two weeks with uh my episode. Um in the meantime, get in touch with us um at Murder in the Land of oz at gmail.com. Um you can find us on Facebook and on Instagram as well. Um and as we said at the top of the episode, you can become a member of the Patreon. We do have Patreon only content. Um, and you can um, obviously like chat to us over patreon as well but you know i'm always on the instagram so please um like send me a message if there's anything that you want to talk about about this week's content or about any of our content um yeah all righty we'll see you in two weeks guys bye
0: To kill your darlings, as the writer's adage goes, and I want your help killing mine. Are you a lover of the fantasy adventure novel? Have you ever wanted to add a class at Hogwarts? Or
1: rearrange the nations of Middle Earth?
0: Perhaps you'd redesign the Alethiometer. Or tweak the cosmos of the disc world. Now's your chance. Kill My Darlings is an interactive fantasy writing podcast where you take on the role of editor and give feedback on a brand new world as it's created. Or just vicariously enjoy the writing process. I'm waiting for you to kill my darlings right now, wherever you listen to good podcasts. Kill My Darlings is proudly part of the That's Not Canon Productions podcast network.